Uh, if you guys are just joining us for the first time, we're so glad that you're here. In your bulletins, you'll find a little communication card. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, so if you fill that out, you can take it to the welcome desk outside, and they'll give you a little gift for being here. And if you're an attender here that comes here regularly, we'd love to hear from you too. How can we pray for you? We just love to communicate with our people. And I just want to kind of talk about some things on the back of that bulletin. We believe that our actions matter. And so we have begun to do this thing called the Super Service Saturday. We do them three times a year, and it's about us going out in our community and caring for the people around this building. And so we would ask that you would be a participant in that. We want to be known as a church that goes and meets the needs of others. We want to be generous with our time and our resources. And so uh, we're, we're going to do a Super Service Saturday on April 20. Third, I think is the date, not in the top of my head, but uh, there's a list of things that you can fill out there. We'd love for you to join us. And then uh, let me talk to you about what's coming up here. Next week, we're going to do a Life 101 class right here on this stage. And so we're going to walk through what this church is about, who we believe God is, what we believe church is, and who we believe that we are in God's mission for us. And so we're excited about that. And then we're going to have a guest speaker come in a week after that. My friend John Jenkins is going to be here. And then we're going to start a series in Galatians that we're really excited about. We've been talking about this idea that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we really want to expand on that. But today we're going to celebrate Easter. So would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and we ask that you would just be present in this service. We know that you are, but will you move in our hearts? Will you, will you give us an understanding about you and your resurrection that maybe we haven't had before? Use my words, Lord. Uh, make them your words. Empty me today, Father. Uh, we just praise you today for, for a risen Savior who's changed our life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So many years ago, I was in my room with three of my buddies, and we were playing euchre. I know we have a lot of euchre players in this room. It was a kind of a frequent thing that happened in my life, in this season of my life. And we were in this room after all our studies. We would gather there quite frequently, and we would play euchre for hours, seemingly. This day hangs in my head, and it will for the rest of my life. And I think you guys will understand why. Uh, my friend, my partner, was right across from me, and he lifted up his shirt, and he cleaned out his belly button. I'm not going to do that here and demonstrate, because that's just gross, okay? I didn't see it until I saw this small pile of lint come on the table, to which he said, I must have ate something dusty. Let that say, I must have ate something dusty. Uh, have you ever had somebody say something when you're in the midst of doing something or you're thinking that you just go, that sounded incredibly ridiculous. I must have ate something dusty, to which I went, what? What are you talking about? You must have ate something dusty, to which my friend replied, well, I had a lot of belly button dust. What? My friend next to me said, Phil, where do you think belly button lint comes from? To which he immediately responded, well, dust from food. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're 19, and you don't know this. What began next was the most incredible conversation I've maybe had in my life. My friend believed that when you ate food, it had dust on it, and that dust would travel through the body and magically find a small tube that would then extrude that dust and that dust alone into the belly button, creating lint. What? Are you serious? After my friends and I picked up our jaws 
and we settled down from laughing hysterically for quite some time, we kind of broke this hypothesis to my friend that maybe belly button lint was created from the same substance that we find in lint traps in the dryer, that maybe this stuff comes from clothes and not from food dust. Uh, I don't know if he fully believed us. He has yet to deny it to this day, but he's the type of guy that I think would just keep something going because he wants to get a rise out of people. I don't know if you know those people, but they'll continue in something just to get a rise from people. He has yet to deny it to this day. And here's what happened to me in my brain. What else does this guy believe? What else does this guy, what other wacko thoughts does this guy have in his head? Can I trust him knowing what he just said. Today, we gather to celebrate a man that died upon the cross and was raised from the grave. I believe that Jesus Christ went into the tomb and the tomb was shut. He was dead for three days and somebody came back and that stone was rolled away and he wasn't there. He came back to life. He's alive. A dead man came back to life. Do you believe that? Because here's the thing. There are many people in this world that would think that that belief is just as silly as a magical journey of food dust out your belly button. Many people would say, that's silly, unbelievable. There are maybe many people in this room that would say a belief in a risen Savior, somebody who died and was buried, and three days later, he rose again. That's silly talk. And here's the thing. I think that we feel this as believers. I think whether it's subconsciously or consciously, we feel this that culture kind of thinks that this idea of a risen Savior, somebody coming back from the dead, is illogical and kind of just unbelievable. And I think that we feel it. And what I think it produces in us as Christians is a tentativeness to talk about the resurrection of Christ, to talk about our Savior who came back from the grave. We would much rather talk about a Jesus that's much more palatable, a Jesus that loves everybody, a Jesus that's graceful, a Jesus that's acceptable. We all believe that he's made us worthy. We just don't like to kind of maybe talk about why he made us worthy. Maybe we shy away from talking about that. Why? Because we want to be credible. Who doesn't want to be credible? Somebody raising from the dead is illogical. We, we don't want to be seen as a fool. We don't want to be seen as the weird guy like my friend Phil. We don't want to be embarrassed. And telling people that we believe in a man that was raised from the dead three days after he died makes us not credible, it feels. It might create embarrassment, so we don't talk about it. Can I talk to you about Paul? Paul says this in Romans 1. In Romans 1, 16, the apostle Paul, the greatest Christian that's ever lived, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. The Greeks are us. That's the Gentiles. Us to us as well. 
Here's Paul's contention. He says that he is not going to shy away from the gospel because he's not ashamed of it. And the gospel includes the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin, that he was raised from the grave three days later, and by faith we have been given a gift called grace that we can be in a whole relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not afraid of that gospel. I'm not afraid of that resurrection. In fact, if you want to discount me, I'm okay with that, but I'm not going to shy away from it. It's that powerful to me. It means that much to me. Are we willing to make that same claim? To be unashamed of the gospel. And so today, what I want to contend to you is why the resurrection matters. I want to talk about the proof of the resurrection and the implications that come as a result of God raising himself from the dead. The apostle Paul is the greatest theologian that has ever existed in the world. And he begins to get the sense in this early time period that one of his beloved churches is kind of devaluing the resurrection. And so Paul picks up his pen, picks up his papyrus, and he begins to write to this church in Corinth that they should not devalue the resurrection. He has great concern for what they're doing, that they should not forget the importance of Easter. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life alone, we are of all people most to be pitied. Some of you have read this passage and some of you understand it, but I want to paraphrase this just a little bit today for us to get our minds around it. Paul is sensing this rift in the church where there are some people who are essentially under their breath saying that Easter doesn't matter, the resurrection doesn't matter. Some people think it does, but other people don't. And so the Apostle Paul begs to differ. And I love how he sought to change their minds. And since he says, hey, I I know that you don't think Easter's a big deal, so let's just play this out. Let's just play this out and see if there's any implications in our life that would occur if Christ did not raise from the dead. And so he writes about six of them, six ideas of the implications if Christ did not raise himself from the dead. Paul goes on to tell him this. He says, and he tells us this as well. This isn't just for the church in Corinth. This is for us as well. If Christ was not raised from the dead, you need to understand that every church service that's ever existed since the beginning of time, every gathering that's come under the name of Christ has been meaningless. It means nothing. Every song that's been sung, every every prayer that's been prayed, every sermon that has been written was all written in vain. You and I getting here together on this date is a waste of our time if God did not raise himself from the dead. Second thing Paul says is if if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our entire Christian faith is a fabrication. It is like a house of cards that will fall to the floor. 
Thirdly, if Christ did not been, had not been raised from the dead, then we are spreading outright lies to our friends and our families every time we try to share about our faith, about our Christ. We are false witnesses. We are like snake oil salesmen. We are fools. We've been trying to encourage others to a faith that is meaningless. Fourth, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. We may think that our pile of wrongdoing, our filth has been forgiven, and we might try to convince ourselves that we have been cleansed and washed from our wrongdoings, but if Christ had not been raised from the dead, every sin that we've ever done in word and thought and deed is still on us. It is still written on our moral record, and we will have to pay for it someday when we are in front of a holy God. Fifth, Paul says that if Christ has been not raised from the dead, all of your loved ones, those who have died before you in Christ that you thought were in a better place in the next reality, well, they haven't. They're not there. They're not there. We don't know what kind of shape they're in. We don't know where they are. They're not, but if Christ was not raised from the dead, they're not with him. And listen, you're not going there either. You're not going there either. And then to pound the final nail into the coffin in Paul's argument, Paul talks about this idea of being fools, that we're to be pitied. He writes this at a time where the Christian church is being heavenly persecuted by the Roman Empire. And he writes to his friends in Corinth and he says, you should know all of you, that there are people who are paying a huge price for their faith. You personally know people who have been beaten and tortured and killed for their faith. You have seen people sawed in half for their faith. You have heard about people being thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum for their faith. If this whole thing is not true, why? Why? If he is still in the grave outside of Jerusalem, this whole thing is a hoax, a twisted lie that's made up by some twisted person, and we've all drank the Kool-Aid. We're the fools, and we should be put in some padded room somewhere because we're acting like crazy people right now. And so Paul wanted this church in Corinth, and he wants this church today to come with terms with the fact that for the Christian faith, it doesn't hinge all on the birth of Christ, on the incredible death of Christ. The whole Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Christ. This is a huge deal. Don't ever disrespect the resurrection of Christ because the whole faith hangs on it. No other religious leader in human history has ever conquered the grave. This is a special faith with a special person at the center of it that defeated the grave. All other religious world leaders of the day are in their tomb with a sign that says occupied on them. They're still there. The resurrection of Christ is what sets Christianity apart from everything else in this world. It always has and it always will. Paul says respect the resurrection of Christ. It has sweeping implications for your life. But maybe, maybe you need proof to understand the implications. Maybe you're an evidence guy. Well, Paul's going to write to you, too, here in 1 Corinthians. But maybe you would say, 
well, Steve, bro, look, and you call me bro, that's okay, you can call me bro. So you're going to tell me that you're going to use the Bible to support your claim that Jesus Christ raised from the dead? You're going to quote scripture? That seems a little bit self-serving. I don't know if I can believe the scripture. So how are you going to tell me about the resurrection of Christ and its proof through scripture? Well, I'll just say this. I would say, hey, thanks for bringing that up, bro. Can I show you something? Can I show you something? This is P52, my friends. Papyrus. 52. It is the earliest copy of the Gospel of John. It was written in 125 AD. You can go visit it in Manchester, England if you would like to. If you could read Greek, what you would read, you would read about Jesus Christ in front of Pontius Pilate, his trial before his execution. But you don't have to go there to read it because you could pick up your Bibles today and turn to John 18 and you would read the exact same thing. Can I show you one more? This is, this is P46, Papyrus 46. You can go visit it at the University of Michigan. It may be the only good thing about the University of Michigan, to be honest with you. <laughs> I just read this to you today. I just read this to you. And I'm going to read to you a little bit more of it that talks about the proof of the evidence the resurrection. The same thing that is written in this document is the same thing that we read today. This is over 1,800 years old, written on organic reeds that somehow survived. Listen, friends, there is no other book in human history that has as much evidence for its authenticity as the Bible. And it's not even close. It's not even close. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Two documents doesn't even include the other 5,800 Greek manuscripts and 10,000 Latin manuscripts that we have that date from 60 to 500 years after the birth of Christ. Incredible stuff. If the Bible says it, it has weight. And it has weight right here in the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul turns his attention to these doubters. And he writes before verse 14, he writes starting in verse 3 in 1 Corinthians, six rapid-fire proofs of the resurrection of Christ. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Simon Peter, the disciple Peter. Then he went to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Lastly of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus appeared to Peter. Then he appears to all 12 of the disciples at once. And then he appears to 500 at one time. Paul adds that most of these people are still alive at this time that he writes. And so friends in Corinth, if you want to go interview these 500 people, go ahead. They're going to tell you the exact same story. That would be good for you. He says the risen Christ appeared to James and then to all the apostles, some 70 high-capacity leaders. And then Paul says that with great humility and awe, he said that the resurrected Christ appeared to me that I saw him. And I believe in the resurrection from the top of my head to the tips of my toe. And I will proclaim it until the day I die. 
And if you know anything about history, you know that Paul did. Paul proclaimed the name of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, until he was killed, tortured. He believed in it that much, and so did all the other disciples. All of them, tortured, killed, beaten, put into prison. They never recanted before they died. Chuck Colson, I don't know if you know who Chuck Colson is. Chuck Colson met Jesus Christ when he was in prison. He served a term in prison for what he was a part of in the Watergate scandal. The Watergate scandal plagued this country in the 70s. Colson was an aide to President Richard Nixon. This is what Colson has to say about the resurrection of Christ. He says, I know that the resurrection is fat, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they saw Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would have not endured that if it was not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. It's a powerful quote. Jesus Christ has risen. And so what I want to go back and I want to speak towards these ideas, these six negative implications that we talked about uh, if the resurrection did not happen. I want to turn them on their head because in fact Jesus Christ did raise from the dead and I want to hear you to hear the positive implications of that truth. Remember when I said that Jesus Christ, Paul said that if Christ did not raise from the dead, every church service that we've ever attended would be just a ridiculous waste of our time. But because Christ raised from the dead, his promise in Matthew 18, 20 came true that said, wherever two or three gather in my name, I will be with them. This is a miraculous concept in the Christian faith. No other faith in the human history has this kind of idea. After Jesus Christ is resurrected, he says that every time that you gather in my name, in my churches, any service, any location, any culture, any language, anywhere in the world, that he would join with his congregation. He would be with his people supernaturally, mystically, miraculously in presence. That he would make himself available to those who are in that gathering if they're open to it. He will come near them, and he will meet the needs of that congregation according to his will. Christianity is the only religion that promises this kind of thing, that when you gather, the risen Savior makes himself available to you, to the doubter, to the skeptic, to those who have committed mistakes, and to anyone and everyone who's willing. And so if you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, all I can say is test it. Test it. Would you test it? Would you take the next 30 days and test it to pray that the risen Savior would reveal himself to you? Because listen, your decision on what you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life because its implications, the implications of it are so vast. If you believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, 
If you believe that he is not in that tomb, then what else matters? Your job? Are you kidding me? Money? Nothing else matters. So if you haven't made that decision, would you join us and pray for 30 days that the risen Savior would make himself known to you, that he would reveal himself to you? I cannot imagine what will happen. So Paul also goes on to say that if Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is a fabrication. It falls to the floor like a house of cards. But if Christ indeed was risen from the dead, you have an extraordinary faith. We have a rock-solid, historically proven, defensible faith that has withstood a trial of over 2,000 years that blew up from a few dozen followers into 2.2 billion believers, the largest faith in this world. Nobody ever taught like Jesus. Nobody ever loved like Jesus. Nobody ever healed like Jesus. Nobody ever stood up to corruption and injustice as fearlessly as Christ did. He shouldered self-sacrificially all of our sin. He took it all on himself, and he died an atoning death for your sake and for my sake. And on top of all of that, he conquered the grave. He conquered the grave and defeated sin and death. The Apostle Paul says that if Christ was not raised from the dead... And we share with our friends and our families, we're sharing a myth. We're liars. We're like snake oil salesmen. But if he did raise from the dead, and he did raise from the dead, proving this whole thing to be true, that every time that we share the message about our hope of Christ, we are giving to those people the greatest opportunity of their lifetime, that they could come to know a Savior who is madly in love with them that we would introduce them, that it would change their world. Change their world. And they may thank you for the rest of their life. The greatest gift a, a human being can give to another human being is the gospel of Christ. It's not your life insurance plan. It's not your house after you die. It's the gospel of Christ. Because if they receive that gift, it transforms their life from the inward out. It increases their capacity to love, to provide guidance and purpose for them in life. The promise of eternity is the most radically transforming message in this world. And if you offer it as a gift to another human being, uh, it is the most incredible thing that you could ever do. Remember when Christ said, or Paul said, that if Christ were not raised from the dead, that we're still in our sin? That's serious business. Like if Paul says that if we were raised, if Christ were not raised from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and could atone and cancel our sin, then we still are accountable for our moral filth. And in my case, that pile's pretty big. That pile's pretty big. That would be terrifying to face that. Maybe your pile of regret is not as big as mine. Uh, I've got a big pile. And if I had to, to carry on life with that kind of weight of unforgiveness that I was going to have to stand before a holy God and account for that, I don't know if I could even function in this world. But Paul says that Christ did die. And all who humbly ask upon Christ's name to cancel their death, he is applied to that moral pile of filth. You can have your sins canceled today 
in the past and in tomorrow. And this is such a big deal for us, not just in the long term, but in the short term, because it frees us up in how we live. And the Bible uses lots of metaphors to talk about how Christ has dealt with our sin. It frees you up to understand that you have an assurance of forgiveness. If you're a sky gazer, in Psalm 103 it says that, that God has made, taken our sin and, and has separated it as far as the east from the west. Your transgressions are that separated. If you're a stargazer, go out tonight and look at the sky. Your sin has been removed from you as far as you can look to your right to all that you can look to your left. If you're a nature lover, in Isaiah 1 it says, Though your skin, sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Your sin has been made white as snow. In Micah 7 it says that I will bury your sins in the depths of the ocean. That Jesus Christ has taken my sin and he has buried them in the deepest part of the ocean and they are not going to resurface. I'm in awe of a Savior that would do that for me. That he would do that. In Hebrews 8, it says, Their sins I will remember no more. The good news of Easter is that because Christ has risen, we can live every single day of our life with a rock-solid assurance that he has paid our debt. And that is in an extraordinary way to live, friends. We have an extraordinary faith. And Paul, finally, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are the fools who drank the Kool-Aid. We are to be pitied and put into some padded cell somewhere. But Paul says that if Jesus Christ is alive and well, then we should think of ourselves as the most fortunate and blessed people on the face of this earth. Because we're a part of the one true religion, the one incredible faith called Christianity that is coherent and consistent and comprehensive and inclusive. It's a beautiful faith. We are part of a faith that says that there is a God who has an irrational love for the person that sits in your seat, an irrational love for you. And it doesn't matter if you doubt, and it doesn't matter if you tried another religion, it doesn't change God's irrational and unconditional love for you. God sent his son on a rescue mission to atone for our pile of sin. And even though you don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, we don't deserve it, God makes redemption available as a free gift to us. God poured out all the wrath that he had against the children of God onto Christ, and he crushed him. Because sin has a consequence. God cannot be in the presence of sin. And so he pours it all onto his son Christ. Christ took it. And above and beyond all of that, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is applied to our life. You get to be resurrected in life, a life that is eternal. This is an extraordinary faith that we're a part of. And we have an extraordinary Savior in the center of it. And the most extraordinary thing of all of it is that the hand of that risen Savior is extended to you today in relationship. The Word says that if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that I can be saved, maybe it's time that you make that decision today, that you would turn and repent from your sin and turn your attention to the Savior who irrationally loves you from the grave. He's alive.
Don't be ashamed of the gospel, my friends. Don't be ashamed of the resurrection. It is the power that provides salvation for us, and we are nothing without it. And so as you celebrate with your friends today and your family, would you consider the implications of the risen Savior in your own life? And you would praise him for what he has done for you. This is an extraordinary faith. And we should not shy away from speaking and proclaiming the resurrection, a risen Savior who has changed our life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we would just pray that you would interact with our heart today, that we would be full of gratitude as we remember what you've done for us, that we would be full of praise for what you've done for us in our life. You are extraordinary, Christ. You are risen from the grave and you have healed our hearts. You have canceled our sin. Help us to count the ways in which we can praise you today, Lord. You're amazing. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.